listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. This morning we'll be reading Mark chapter 9. We're starting at verse 2, going through the end of verse 13. This is found in the Pew Bible or Chair Bible or whatever on page 844. Uh, and, and by the way, if you don't own a Bible or maybe uh, you just don't like your Bible because it's got like the Book of Mormon in it or something, you can take one of these, we can take one of these Bibles. It's, it's our gift to you. Um, it's 844 is the page we're on. Uh, Mark 9 is, uh, it comes right at the, at the turning point of Mark's gospel. If you could split the gospel in half, this is about where you take the scissors. And... Up until this point, we've seen who Jesus is, and it's here that we see what Jesus has come to do. And it's fitting then that at this moment, the most incredible thing happens, uh, the transfiguration of Jesus. That's, that's what we call it. And in transfiguration, all it means is a, really a transformation. And in other words, it looks like one thing, and then, and then something happens, and you see it for, for what it really is. Uh, so, so we'll be studying the transfiguration this morning. I, I thought I might have to arm wrestle Brad for this one because I, I really wanted a shot at it. Uh, it's just exciting. I, I, as I've been reading it this week, it's been really encouraging for me personally, and, and hopefully you'll see why as we, as we get started. But let me pray, and, uh, and then we'll read the text and go from there. Father, uh, I'm, I'm grateful uh, to, to be gathered with all these people, uh, your people, as we worship you this morning, uh, singing your praise. And, and Lord, I, I, I do, I want to glorify you this morning. I, I want us all to, to turn our gaze to your Son, to our Savior. I pray that as we study these words, that they would not fall to the ground, but that you would accomplish your purpose by them, that you would speak truth into our hearts and change our minds. And For those of us who know you, I pray that it would stir greater love for Jesus. As the song we just sang, I pray that, that we would love you more as we read of, of this account of the transfiguration of Jesus. I pray for those in here who do not know you, that, that you would draw their gaze to the glorious King, who is, a, who is a glorious Savior, a mighty rescuer from sin. I pray that whatever preconceived notion of who Jesus is that we have would disappear in light of who he really is. As, as best as I can communicate that. And I pray that in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right. Mark, chapter 9. Last week, Brad finished his text with, with chapter 9, verse 1. And this week, I, 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 we are going to pick up with verse 2, but I, I think it's helpful to pick up with verse 1, actually, to start there. So that's where I'll start reading, and, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Mark, chapter 9, verse 1. 
And Jesus said to them, the disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. How is it that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. There's a lot going on here. Um, I do want to start, though, by, by backtracking several centuries. If you're all right with that. Mountains are a big deal in the Bible. Uh, the transfiguration, uh, you may have noticed, it, it takes place on a high mountain. Jesus leads them up a high mountain. And really, you can trace the, the story of the redemption of God's people through the Bible by looking at mountains. Uh, the Garden of Eden, in the creation account, we don't see anything about mountains necessarily there. But in Ezekiel chapter 28, uh, Ezekiel makes this link between the Garden of Eden and it actually being uh, on top of a mountain. Uh, so, so God's walking, his initial walking with man takes place on a mountain. Uh, Ararat, Mount Ararat, uh, I think that's right. If, if you remember when the floodwaters subside after Noah's ark and all that, his ark lands safely on top of a mountain. It's there that Noah makes a sacrifice to God. It's there that God makes a covenant with Noah and really all of the world saying that he won't destroy the world like, he, like he's just done in the flood ever again. Uh, Mount Moriah is another mountain. This is where Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. And it's there that the Lord speaks to, to Abraham and provides him with uh, a ram instead of his actual son for, for sacrifice. God provides a substitute uh, for, for Abraham who was faithful. There, there's another mountain, though, that gets a lot of, of airplay in, in, in the Old Testament, especially. It's known by two names, I think. One is, is Horeb, and the other name for it is, is also Sinai. And, and I want to talk about two uh, instances at Mount Horeb. 
that may be a little less familiar, and then I'll focus primarily for the rest of this time together on, on Mount Sinai. But, but, but let's talk about when it's referred to as Horeb. In Exodus 3, Moses uh, encounters a burning bush on Mount Horeb, and, and it, we come to find out that that's actually the Lord who, who then speaks to Moses and explains to him that he's got this great plan for the rescue of his people from Egypt, from slavery, and, and it's there that, Mo, that Moses is, is told to go back to Egypt and to redeem God's people. If you fast forward well beyond that escape from Egypt to 1 Kings 19, Elijah also encounters God on Mount Horeb. Uh, Elijah is, is fearing for his life. All the prophets that he knows of are dead, and he's concerned that the work of God that, Mo, that Elijah has to do is not going to be completed because he's the last one. There are, no, there are none left to, to proclaim the word. And so the Lord comes to Elijah, and he speaks to him there. And, and it's not in the whirlwind or the, 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 the storm. It, none of that. It's, it's a quiet whisper that the Lord speaks to him and reassures Elijah that the Lord actually has a remnant of people in Israel that, that he has set aside by grace for himself. Mountains are a big deal. They, they, they just are. Geographically, they're a big deal. But in the Bible and the geography of Scripture, they, they are very important. They're markers. They remind us of the, the truths of God. They point us to God's work for his people. And the most important mountain in all of the Bible, arguably, is Mount Sinai, which I've just referred to as Mount Horeb, but, but you probably are more familiar with Mount Sinai in terms of the Ten Commandments, the, right after Exodus, all, all of that that takes place in Exodus 19 and beyond. We, we get a lot of description of Mount Sinai in, in Exodus 19, 24, 33, 34, and, and so on. And Mount Sinai is, is primarily known as God's dwelling. This is where the Lord lives. Now, we can, we can get into the physics of that, and I'd rather not. But the point is that, that for the Israelites, they saw Mount Sinai, and they didn't just see a mountain where Moses would walk up and, and hear from God. No, what they saw at Sinai was the dwelling of God. The God who had rescued them from, from Egypt dwells at Sinai. And it makes sense if you think about a mountain. This is really where earth and heaven sort of meet. This is where God and man can commune, communicate. It's at Mount Sinai then that the law is given to Israel. All the commands that God would have his people abide by and the things that he would have them do. This is where he proclaims these to, to them through Moses. But because this is where the Lord is and because this is where the law is given... There's also great fear. Only, only Moses and maybe a few others who had been set aside with a lot of elaborate rituals could ascend the mountain of God. But because of the requirements of the law and because of the sinfulness and, and uncleanliness of God's people, no one could approach the, the mountain of God. No one could approach Mount Sinai without fear of certain death. The Lord warns Moses again and again and again, and he says, Moses, do not let these people even touch the mountain. I, I don't want to see a cow at the foot of this mountain, all right, because they will die. They simply will die. But in addition to this fear of judgment, 
you also have just the presence of the Lord. And, and in the presence of the Lord, there, there is, and we may not like to think about it in these terms, but on the one hand, there's great majesty. We see the Lord, and he, he descends on this cloud, on this mountain in a cloud, and it's glorious and bright. At the same time, it's, it's a bit terrifying because he's the God of the universe, and you're very, very, very far from that. You're not even allowed to come to the mountain that he's on because he is so other. He is so holy. He is so set apart from, from his people in terms of holiness. So there's, there's majesty, but there's also terror. There's glory, but there's also mystery. What is happening there? there there's danger. And, and mountains in general, I mean, we're, I, I tend to think of like the Appalachians, right? And, and that's fun for hiking and whatnot. But, but no, when we talk about mountains here, let's not think about trail runs. Let's, let's think more in terms of barren wasteland, craggy rocks and mountain goats. And nobody wants to live there unless you just plan on dying there too, right? So there's, there's danger, but, but because it's a mountain, there's also a sense of security. Height above all your enemies, there's an overseeing of, of everything around you. There's a, there's a sense of safety at God's mountain. And that seems a little contradictory, but, but uh, it, it really became real to me last night about 3 a.m. I don't know if you were aware of the incredible storm that was happening uh, while you were all nestled safely in your beds. Um, but, but the thing is, when I, I personally, I love thunderstorms. Uh, I, I just, I love it. I can't get enough of it. My wife, Sigourney, she's not that thrilled when there's a thunderstorm. Um, but, but nevertheless, I, I find a way to enjoy it. And um, so last night, this, this storm is occurring, and there's lightning, and there's thunder, and I, I think the whole world's going to crash in around me. And yet somehow, it really doesn't seem to phase me as much because, well, I'm inside. I'm under a roof. I'm in my bed. I'm snuggled up. I, I, I'm safe. I'm fine here. At the same time, then, I, I felt both a sense of, terror and dread and fear of what, what is that pecan tree in my backyard actually going to do in light of this? What, what's that oak tree that stands five feet from my house going to, what's going to happen to that? Is it going to kill me in my sleep? But at the same time, I, I feel a sense of safety because I'm, I'm tucked away. I'm covered. And I, I, I know this is an imperfect analogy, but I think when the people of God approach the God of glory, there is a sense that both things are taking place, that there is, on the one hand, great dread and terror and fear and mystery of the unknown, but, but there's also great delight and safety, and safety and security where he is. That was a long explanation, wasn't it? But the point is, in Mark 9, uh, the, the gospel writer Mark, he, he makes no debate, there, there's no question here, he is trying to draw a direct comparison to Mount Sinai. And he, he uses some of the same words. He says, and, and when I say this, I'm just going to rattle these things off, so, so don't flip around, but, but primarily you could find this if you were to go home later today in Exodus 19, 24, 34. In Exodus 24, uh, Moses is, is on the mountain or around the mountain for six days. And, and you notice in Mark 9, it says in verse 2 that after six days, Jesus went to the mountain. There, there's a number there that's meant to trigger something. And in Exodus 24, 15 through 18, we get the idea of just how high Mount Sinai is. This is a high mountain. And, and again, in, in verse 2, it's referenced in, in Mark chapter 9 that, 
But this is a high mountain. In, in Exodus 34, 29 through 35, there's great brightness in the presence of the Lord, such that Moses' face gets a pretty severe tan. And, 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 and in fact, we see here a lot of radiance, intense whiteness, such that no one on earth could bleach Jesus' clothes. And, and then we see Elijah and Moses. These two men, uh, the, the last time you may have seen them, were, were probably uh, would have been on Mount Horeb, on, on another mountain, on Mount Sinai for Moses. And so, so we have these two actual characters from previous events on top of a mountain who are also here. And we'll talk about the nature of their presence in a minute. You also have Peter who refers to tents. Oh, it's great that we're here. Let's make three tents. And it sounds kind of a, like a stupid sort of comment for Peter to make. Why, why in the world? Don't you, what are you doing? Thanks, Peter. Uh, but, but by referring to tents in, in, in the way he says it, it's, it's really also, you could say, a tabernacle, Right? In Exodus 26, on the mountain, the Lord tells Moses that there are certain regulations for the tent of God, the tent where the priest meets with God and the Ark of the Covenant and, and all of that. Uh, this is called a tabernacle, the presence of the Lord, where he dwells. And so Peter is only partially out of his mind when he says this, because he's also sort of thinking along the lines of Sinai and the, the presence of the Lord and his dwelling place. So we have tents. We have great terror. Uh, it says right after Peter's bizarre comment that he had no idea really what he was saying because he was so fearful. Uh, in Exodus 19:16, the people of God, Israel, they, they also explained to Moses how terrified they are of the Lord's presence. In Exodus 19:19, 19, 19, we see the Lord descend on Mount Sinai in a cloud. We see Moses ascend into this cloud to confer with God. And once again here in, in Mark 9, there is a cloud and, and the Lord is is there, and likewise we know that the Lord is there because of the voice that comes from the cloud, which certainly makes Mount Sinai uh, possible. So there, there are a lot of similarities. We see a lot of the same words. We see a lot of the similar experiences of the people there, some of the same faces. But there's one difference. There's one person we haven't seen there in this way before, and, and that person is Jesus, who is shown to be the glory of God himself. We see that he is radiant, that he's intensely white, which is a, a sign of the purity and holiness of heaven. We see that, that his clothing is bleached in a way that no one on earth could bleach anything. And, and in this way, he's somewhat otherworldly. He's beyond this world. We see Moses and Elijah there, and whether they were physically actually present or not isn't exactly the point of the text. We, we do see them there, and Jesus is speaking to them. So I'd say it's a safe bet that they're just as there as Jesus was. But the point behind Elijah and Moses being there is not so much the physics of it as it is where have they been? Whose presence are they normally in? And, and the answer to that, because they are dead, is, is God, the Father. And so here we have the presence of God symbolized in the presence of Elijah and Moses who have spent all their time since the Old Testament with God. The word that's used to describe the transfiguration of Jesus is, is a word that we, you're probably familiar with, uh, meta, 
metamorphoon is, I guess, the word. I don't, I don't know. But, but it, you get the idea. Metamorphosis, like when a butterfly changes from a caterpillar to a you know, butterfly. Uh, so we have Jesus. He undergoes sort of a metamorphosis. And the point of that word, though, is not so much to say A becomes B or a wooden pulpit becomes pool of water. It's not a matter of difference. It's a matter of, of what is the reality becoming visible. So for Jesus to undergo this transfiguration is not to say, oh, Jesus became glorious. No, the, the reality is that this radiance, this intense whiteness, this, this otherworldly bleached robe, this isn't new for him. This is a revelation of the inner reality of who Jesus is, which is glorious. And so at the point in Mark's gospel where we're looking at who he is and we're still trying to figure out who is Jesus, we now get an idea as we move forward of what he's come to do. And it's all tied together in this glorious appearing of Jesus Christ on Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai right? No, on the mountain of transfiguration. And this will help us to see then also not just who he is, but what he's come to do. So, let's, let's compare them. Exodus 34, 29 through, through 35, explains the shining face of Moses, and it reads this way. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him, or he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Moses was, at best, a, a reflection. But Jesus, he is the reality of God. He is the reality of the glory of God in human form here. He's not, he's not just a mere rabbi that, that these disciples have been following around. They come to see, they come to experience that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Before we had Moses, he pointed us to God. But when we look at Jesus, we see God himself. Moses was a servant, but Jesus, he is the Son of God. And in Hebrews 3, 3 through 6, the writer explains that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. 
Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Moses was a reflection. Jesus is the reality. Moses was a servant. And yes, Jesus does serve his people. But in this sense, Moses was a servant. Jesus is the son of God. Whereas Moses was merely a herald, Jesus is the heir to the throne. He is the king. He is the prince. He is the royal descendant. He is the one we worship, not Moses. Moses only pointed us to him. And so, Jesus and and all that he has done up till now and all that he will do and the rest of the Gospel of Mark is, is directly tied to who he is. He's no mere man. He is the king of glory. And in fact, it's interesting that at the Mount of Transfiguration, we have the same response that Israel once gave to God at Sinai, with Peter and James and John trembling, stammering to figure out what in the world to say to this man. These are grown sailors who have no idea what to do in this moment. And so the question that we must ask ourselves is, what will we do with this? If Jesus Jesus is the Son, if he is the heir, if he is the reality of who God is, then who are we not to bow down and worship to him? He is no mere man. He's greater than Moses. Won't you bow before him? Who, who dares to, to stand next to him as his peer or to stand in front of him to challenge him? He is the king of glory. And he's worthy of our worship. He commands our worship. So he is the king. He is a glorious king. And the only response to this revelation of his glory as seen here is to worship him. In Hebrews 1, the author again points to this. He says, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, for he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In Colossians 1, 13 through 20, Paul writes, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And the transfiguration is only a taste of the coming of that kingdom. And 9-1, the reason I had us read that together is because Jesus seems to imply that, that there are men among the disciples who will not die before they see the kingdom come. And that seems confusing because we think of the kingdom as being some sort of otherworldly environment into which we're sort of brought at the end of the world or something like that. But the kingdom of God, the essence of the kingdom of God is not another place, but it is a person. It is a rule, it is a king, and it is Jesus. He is our glorious king. And yet, yet, Christ turns from that glory and faces the cross. And not only that, but he beckons us to follow him there as well. The disciples respond to to this as they as they go down the mountain after seeing this incredible event the glory of Jesus on display the the affirmation of God the Father that this is my son listen to him what do you what do you do after that where do you go what do you what do you say is there any movie that you go home to watch after experiencing something like that and as they're walking down Jesus carefully instructs them not to speak a word of it until until one day when, when Jesus will be raised from the dead. Well, if you remember, really, this whole, this whole book, we, we've been over and over again watching through the eyes of the disciples as Jesus reveals himself to them, as he explains to them who he is. And only recently have we gotten to a real point where the disciples have run into something of a roadblock. They, they don't know what to make of this. Last week, Jesus explained to them that he was not only the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the one sent by God to redeem sinful man like us, but that, but that Jesus would accomplish that and that the only way to properly understand him as this Christ is to understand it within the context of his death. And the disciples have, they have no category for that. That doesn't make sense because Jesus is ushering in a kingdom. This, is, this isn't a resurrection, this is a revolution, Right? And so they say to Jesus, well, Elijah, right? Um, doesn't he come first? And then everything's restored by him. And, and what they're referring to, uh, to give him some credit, is Malachi 4, 4 through 6, where, where the prophet explains, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. What, what Peter is referring to, what the disciples are banking on, is this scripture, which is very clear. Elijah comes and restores everything. 
And, and just so everybody's on the same page, Elijah was a real man. And, and we, we read of him in, in the books of Kings. Uh, Elijah was a prophet, uh, a prophet that God sent to his people to, to declare to them repentance, to turn from their sin, to, to trust again in, in God. Uh, Elijah never dies, actually. He ends up being swept up to heaven. But Elijah was a real man, and, and when Malachi is saying this, it's not necessarily that he's speaking directly of Elijah. And yet the, the, the apostles, I mean, can you fault them? The disciples, they, they've just seen Elijah right there. For Jesus to say anything of resurrection would really not imply his death and resurrection, but would probably be more likely to them to be understood as the restoration of all things, ushered in by Elijah himself, we just saw. So what gives, Jesus? But Jesus, Jesus responds, and he says to them that, of course Elijah comes first. But, but what else do the prophets say? And, and in Isaiah chapter 53, this is a text that I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, I, I think it's helpful to read the whole, the whole thing because it, it speaks so clearly of the trajectory of Jesus' life. In Isaiah 53, the prophet says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living stricken for the transgression of my people." They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Jesus, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The disciples expect the restoration of all things. They, they do not expect the one who they presume will be at the forefront of that to die. And yet Jesus says that while their understanding of who he is is true in, in the way Malachi has explained that, yes, somebody will come before, there, there's a restoration to take place, there's a general resurrection of the dead that has to occur, Jesus corrects them and he completes their thoughts and he says, no, in addition to that, there's another prophecy that has to be fulfilled. 
And it's a prophecy of death for the anointed one, for the suffering servant that God has put down to earth to bring his people righteousness. And so the shame and the disappointment and even today the the foolishness of what the cross suggests, the necessity that one die for another, let alone that it be our supposed God, That is completely overwhelmed by what we've just seen. The glory of that one man. And it's the glory of Jesus in the transfiguration which anticipates the cross. There's a reason why immediately after this event, Jesus and his disciples descend the mountain. And the first thing Jesus says is not to speak of his glory, not to speak of the transfiguration, but to look to the cross. To look ahead to the resurrection, which implies also his death for sinners. It's his glory which anticipates the cross in the sense that his glory says, He must die. This man, no one else can do it but him. He is the one. And at the same time, it's his glory that also comes from the cross. It's his glory that follows the cross because he will rise in victory as a victorious, glorious king for his people. John 17, 1 through 5 is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is one of the final things that he prays before before his crucifixion. And the first five verses of chapter 17, I think, give you an idea of what I mean When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true, only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. As, as unbelievable as the transfiguration is, and as important as it is in pointing us to the cross and pointing us to his resurrection, as we turn from the the glory, and we turn instead to the cross. What is even more glorious, what is even more spectacular, and what is even more real, and will be more real for all of us, is the glory of Jesus in the, in the presence of God the Father. That, that is the trajectory. And so the disciples, they, they, they have nothing to fear in the long run. Jesus' death and resurrection will only multiply exponentially what they've just experienced then. And so you see then, you see what Jesus' glory and his death accomplish together. Do you see that? It's not just that the cross gives way to glory. 
As if Jesus is working his way up until the very end when everything is glorious. No. It's the cross crucifying an already infinitely glorious son. Which is why death is then overwhelmed as well at the resurrection because he is not to be made glorious, but he is glorious. The cross, the resurrection, next week we'll we'll be celebrating Easter. These things are not in spite of his glory. They, They are precisely because as a result of and and hinged on, wrapped around his glory, which, which is eternal from beginning to end. Some of you are getting a little antsy. Um, and, and I understand. Uh, where's the application, Robert? When are you going to get to the application? How does this fit in to my life? I've been wrestling with that question um, the last few weeks as I've been looking at this, thinking, okay, I can see what's happening here maybe. Uh, we, can, we can talk about the glory of Jesus, but what, what's, what's the takeaway? What can people come home with from this? But as I've been reading this and as I see all these texts of, uh, concerning the glory of our great Savior, I can't help but feel a, a little a little convicted. We, we ask the question, and I think in America, and even at Crosspoint, uh, there's probably a tendency for us to think that unless a scriptural text has some immediate application for my life, uh, that, that it's probably better relegated to, to the pastors and seminaries and, and that sort of thing, just to study, maybe give some background to the really important things like do not steal, right? Love your neighbor. Uh, there's, a, there's a command I can, I can wrestle with. But, but I say I, I felt somewhat convicted in reading this simply because how, how, how much do you have to miss the point of what's happening here to ask what's the point? I think Peter himself tries to force some sort of application by saying, well, let's, let's I can, I, it just so happens I have three tents. One is Moses size. Unless you guys are like three-person tent type dudes. I mean, whatever. I can do that. It's like Peter's trying to make something out of something he cannot possibly understand. And yet for us, I want to ask the question. We ask, where's the application? Where's the application? Does, does, Christ, does Christ's glory and eminence not stir your heart? To worship? Is there any more foundational application than that? That we would see the Savior and think of nothing else but to delight in Him. That we would see our great and glorious God and King. And we would be satisfied with nothing else. That we would be searching for nothing more. Or really, there is nothing more. That we would be searching for nothing external to the worship of this man? The, the underlying f- 
theme, the underlying point of this passage is, is worship. That's the, that's the only thing I can get from this. Jesus is presented before these men standing in the presence of the greatest heroes of Jewish history. Moses, Elijah, these men, they, they live in the presence of God. And here Jesus stands among these men, but greater because he doesn't reflect the glory of God. He doesn't merely herald the glory of God. He's not just a servant of this message. He is what we must worship. He is the one. And so then, last week in, in, in Mark 8, 34 and 38, we, Jesus poses this question to disciples after they've already once rejected the thought that he would have to die. The shame and the foolishness of it all. It's too much for them. And Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him, saying, what are you, what are you talking about? You're supposed to restore everything, not die. And the questions that Jesus poses to, to these men are somehow answered here uh, as we look at his glory. And so, let's look at it. it. Will you come after Jesus? Will you deny yourself? Will you take up your cross? Will you follow him? Will you lose your life in order to save it? Would you maintain your soul? Will you own as your own Christ's words? The answer is not found in pep talks and, and good books and energy drinks. I don't know. The answer is not found inside of us. That the answer, the, the driving force as to whether or not you will do these things, whether or not you will follow Jesus with your life as he commands. The answer to that, the motivation for that is not within. The answer is that we must be overwhelmed and consumed by this vision of the glory of Jesus. And, and unless we are, our labor will, will be in vain. All of our striving and all of our reading and all of our doing, all of our gathering together, all of our singing, these things are, are a mere reflection of the glory of Jesus Christ. And unless we will be overwhelmed, unless we will focus solely on that, We, we, we can't accomplish the things that he's asking us to do. These things must be motivated, they must be driven home by the glory of Jesus, the glory of our great God and King. So don't be fooled. The, the glory of Christ has very real implications and applications for the Christian life. 
And so the Father then commands the disciples and he commands us, saying, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And so we listen to him as he speaks of his death and of his resurrection and of the cost of discipleship. We listen to him. More broadly, we listen to him as he speaks to us through his word today. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 18, which I did not mark. It comes from a man who was there on that mountain hopefully recognize. And Peter says this. Second Peter, 118. Wouldn't have made much sense. I'll start with verse 16. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You probably heard that phrase today, or something similar to it. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. You see, Peter rightly acknowledges that this glorious Savior we, we see more clearly, even then on the mountain of transfiguration, as we study his word. Not only as we listen to what he says in the immediate context of Mark 9, that he must die and be raised, that we must follow him in a likewise manner, but as we study what he says to us in all of Scripture, we will listen to the voice of the beloved and glorious Son. But it's not merely a matter of hearing, it's a matter of heeding, of obeying what he says. Before, at his baptism, the Lord says to the effect that you are my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. But here, the turning point of Mark, the Lord declares to the disciples and to all of us, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so, the mountain of transfiguration is really a transformation of mountains. Uh, last, uh, as, as we began, I, I spoke to you about Sinai. Now that was the most important mountain. Uh, this is the place where the Lord dwells. This is God's abode. It's here that we find the, the curse of the law. It's not just that we find the law, but we, we find its curse. We see the judgment of God on sinful people as God is otherworldly holy, and, and we are not. It's here we find judgment, wrath, and death. It's here that the Lord warns Israel, you will die if you come near. It's here that we see Israel's fear, terror, at the sight and voice of God, and it's there where they beg Moses to, 
intercede for them because the Lord is too glorious for them to handle. It's here that the Lord doesn't say, listen to my son. It's here at Sinai where the Lord says, listen to these ten commandments. Listen to Moses. Listen to the law and the prophets like Elijah. And so the law and prophets are represented again at the transfiguration. Because the reality is that what the Lord was asking them to listen to culminates in Jesus Christ. And so in in Christ's glorious presence, Sinai becomes something else. The curse brought on by the law and the sin that is so inherent to all of us as we disobey and dishonor and reject and disregard God and what he says and what he tells us not to do and what he tells us to do, as we reject those things, the law becomes nothing more to us than than a curse in some ways. It it brings about, or, or rather a curse flows, takes advantage of the commandments of the law. But in the presence of the glorious King Jesus, the curse becomes grace. Wrath becomes welcome. You notice Peter, James, and John, they're able to not only be there, but to be there and ask dumb questions. In the past, Israel was not only not allowed to be there, but to come close to the foot of the mountain would be death. It's in the presence of of Christ and his glory that we're not called to listen to Moses, the law, and the prophets alone, but to listen to these words in the context and with a greater vision for the words of Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's glorious presence that death is done away with and delight in who he is becomes overwhelming. And, And it's in the presence of Christ that the tent, the tabernacle that cut God off from his people and separated them from him and allowed them to only hear from him at a distance, becomes not some little pup tent that Peter could set up on a mountain, but becomes Jesus himself, who John in in his gospel in the beginning says that Jesus, the word of God made flesh, tabernacled among us. And so 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18 Helps us to see more clearly. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We We don't look at Moses. We don't look at the law to get the perfect picture of who Jesus is. We look to Jesus himself. We look to Jesus to see who God is. And and we see him in all of his glory. And so then Sinai becomes another mountain entirely, and it's a mountain that the prophets longed for and looked ahead to. They called it Mount Zion. Uh, Zion, in reality, I think is a hill outside Jerusalem, and I think it might actually be where the temple uh, was built. But in in the big picture, the the prophets use this as a way to explain in in the end of all things, the great culmination of all of history, 
Zion is the place where God will dwell. We see this in Psalm 68, 15 through 19, where the writer says, O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord, uh, Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord, who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. And, and it doesn't directly reference Zion in that exact passage, but the point is that there is another mountain coming in which the Lord will dwell and in which we are invited. And we see that invitation in Isaiah chapter 2. It says in verse 1, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears and the pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the delight of the Lord. Zion is a place where the law also flows. But you notice the beauty of the fact that the Lord doesn't just give us the law, he, he then teaches us his ways. And by grace, brings it to pass in our own hearts that we would obey him. And the most beautiful image of all. At Mount Sinai, people stood at a distance in fear and trembling. But at Mount Zion, the nations, all the peoples, Jews, Gentiles, men, women, young, old, all these people will be invited to ascend the mountain of the Lord. And so then the transfiguration is a taste of what's to come. In closing, I want to read Hebrews chapter 12. If the band could go ahead and make y'all's ways up here. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18, says this. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Worship him. Worship this man. Worship the Savior with your life. There's no fear in his presence, not, not as before. There's no fear of wrath or judgment in the presence of the one who has taken both those things upon himself. In his glory, he has done that. And in his glory, he draws us to, to worship him in spirit and in truth. So turn from your sin. Turn from the disregard that, that all of us are born with, that, that we would not cherish the prince of peace. But, but know that, that what you turn to is, is not a mere man, not a rabbi only. He's God made flesh. He is, he is the glory of God in person. And he invites us to enter his presence made clean by his own righteousness. His own glory is what transforms us to willing and able participants in, in his joy. Let's not wait until Zion to worship him as he deserves. I'm going to pray. Uh, I, I do want to remind you that we have elements up front for the Lord's Supper. The bread represents his body, broken for, for sinners. And, and the juice, the cup, represents the blood of his new covenant. If you're a believer, if you so choose, you, you can participate in this meal. If you're not a believer, if maybe the gospel is something new to you, you don't really know where you stand in terms of uh, how, much, how much you trust it, please, please do not participate in the meal. Uh, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. It's a participation in his body and blood. But you're welcome to come forward and receive communion um, as we sing together. Let, let me pray. Father, we, we, we bow before you. What else can we do? You are the glorious king. You are the king of glory. And at the mountain of transfiguration, we, we are able to behold in words a sense of who you are. And you beckon us to worship you. And so I ask that you would quicken our hearts to do that. That we would delight in your presence, not in fear of wrath, but in the joy of welcome. That you, the King of Kings, would welcome us to your mountain. Thank you for the work of Jesus that that in culmination, in, in cooperation with his glory is powerfully effective.
for those who trust in him. And help us to worship you together now. In Jesus' name, amen.